beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the Heidelberg Catechism, it's made clear on several occasions that the law has a dual purpose. First, what the law does is it reveals to us our sins and so leads us to our Lord Jesus Christ who paid for sin and fulfilled the law in our place, and that's all ours when we believe in him. Another use of the law is to, as we see in Lord's Day 34 and following, it teaches us how to live holy lives before God. We are redeemed in Christ. We're born again. The law shows us how we can be holy as God is holy. But there's also another use of the law. Going back even to the time of the Reformation, both Luther and Calvin taught that the law, and they're thinking here of the Ten Commandments, are, are, are given to create an orderly, peaceable, civil society. And I certainly saw that when, when I was a, a child, which admittedly is a, a long time ago. But when I was a kid, it was illegal to use God's name in vain. It was illegal. Sunday, there were no trucks on the road. There were no stores open. Abortion was a crime. Adultery could get you into all kinds of trouble and so on. It was a, a peaceable, civil society. But oh, how things have changed. The law, it's a bit of a hit and, and, and miss. Some laws are somewhat observed. But you take the commandment not to use God's name in vain or to, to keep the, the Lord's day, the day of rest, that's flown entirely out of the window. The commandment, you shall not murder, it functions somewhat in our society. And at the same time, it's perfectly acceptable to kill an unborn child or to have euthanasia, uh, uh, help someone kill himself or kill somebody as an act of mercy because of pain or whatever. And as for the commandment about sexuality, don't even get me started on that. Brothers and sisters, times have changed. And it's not just because, you know, people look at God's law as something old-fashioned and out of date. There's a whole new philosophy operating in our society. And it's known as postmodernism. Postmodernism basically says there are no morals or values or rules or laws that last forever. They completely change. For a Christian, that's devastating because the law of God is, is timeless. It, it doesn't change. Well, this is what postmodernism would say to a, a Christian. All claims to speak the truth are really claims to power. They are forms of manipulation. Instead of fostering freedom, they merely engender constraint and coercion. So if as a Christian you say, the Sunday is a day of rest, or human sexuality, that's only something for a husband and, and a wife, you're going to get pushback, and, and, and people aren't going to just say you're old-fashioned or you're out of date, but you are abusive. You're on a power trip. You are trying to coerce and force your opinion on another. So we should not be surprised when in our society... 
uh, a Christian politician or Christian doctor or a, a, a Christian professor, where their views, they are attacked horrendously, told you are idiots. You, don't, you have no right to, to function as a politician or a, a doctor or anything like that. The hatred for Christians today is a very real and powerful, dangerous thing. Now, the reason I, I mention this is because the things that live in the world tend to creep into the church as well. Again, going back when I was a kid, I hope I'm not trying to make myself out the old guy this afternoon, but certainly back in the day, churches were by and large very conservative. You know, abortion, nobody would agree to that, right? The Sunday was a day of, of rest, it truly was. But today there are Christian churches that accept abortion and practicing homosexuality. These are trends that are coming into church. We also have to realize it can come into our churches and we need to stand on guard. God's law is his gift to us. And only recognizing that law and valuing it and, and keeping it will create a good relationship between God and us and also a good relationship with our neighbor. And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon, the blessing of the law in the life of a Christian. We'll see how the law works and why God is number one. We're going to start off with a, a pop quiz. And nobody should uh, answer this quiz out loud, but, but here it comes. How do the Ten Commandments start? Okay, you have your answer? Okay, uh, did you say, and don't raise your hand or say anything, did you say the Ten Commandments begin with, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, you're right, that's the first commandment, but that's not how the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words begin. It begins with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's not a command at all. It's a declaration of God's love and grace for us. He says, I am your God. Right away, that makes us think of Exodus 3, when Moses met God at the burning bush, and God revealed himself as the great I am. I am who I am. And when God says that, he says, you know, I exist apart from this world, Apart from creation, I'm not part of creation. I'm not created. I am eternal and I'm infinite. I am the great I am. But this is the amazing thing. The great, infinite, eternal I am has entered creation as Emmanuel. And he has become our God. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to bring us through life so that we may spend eternity with him in a new heaven and new earth. He's our God. He's our friend. He wants to walk with us, and he wants to talk with us, which is absolutely amazing because, you know, important people don't have any time for me. I mean, if I want to connect with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau or President Biden or... 
Queen Elizabeth send them a note and say, could we have a coffee together? Could we chat? They're not even going to answer me. They don't have time for me. But the infinite, great I am, I only have to say, Father, and he's listening. He's there. I have his undivided attention. He wants to walk with us. He wants to talk with us. He says, I am your God. And that's not just an empty statement, brothers and sisters. Politicians can make empty statements. Can't visit with them, but they'll make me all kinds of promises that they don't keep. But that's not our God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And for the Israelites, that was a, an important declaration because coming out of Egypt is their identity, is their beginning as a nation, as God's people. And it brought them into the promised land where there was a temple and the sacrifices. And right there in the temple and the sacrifices, the Israelite understood, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's not just backwards looking, but it's forwards looking to the redemption from an even greater slavery, the slavery of sin and death and the power, the slavery of Satan himself. It points to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was at great pains to make that clear. He also declared that he is the great I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. Like the Father, Jesus Christ is eternal, infinite God who became Emmanuel to come to us, to connect with us, to take our burden, to take our sin, and to die for that on the cross of Golgotha. So every Sunday morning, when we listen to the ten words of the covenant, and we hear that declaration, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, realize this God loves you. He loves you so much. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, that we might become children of God. Now, what's our reaction to this? Seeing what, what an amazing God we have, we, we of course want to have a, a living relationship with him. And we want to, to walk with him. We want to serve him. We want to give lives that are pleasing to, to him. How are we going to do that? Now, God could say, I did my part. I saved you. Now, you figure out how you're going to serve me and worship me. Well, that's not going to go well because even though I'm redeemed, I'm still inclined by nature somewhat to, to hate God and my neighbor. And if I have to figure out how to be holy all by myself, good luck with that. But I'll try. God, I gather he wants to fill this world with people. Well, I, I married one woman and had five children, but maybe I should have married five women, had 25 children, fill the earth and subdue it. Good idea? It's going to be a disaster. Okay, well, I get the feeling that God doesn't like the love of money, so I'm going to give away everything I have, find a cave, live in there, starve myself to death. Maybe that will please God. 
Not a good idea either. Well, thankfully, brothers and sisters, God doesn't leave us to figure it out ourselves and come up with all kinds of disastrous solutions. The God who says, I am there for you, I will also show you how to be holy. And he does that in the the Ten Commandments. It's an answer to prayer. It's exactly what we want. It's why we sang in Psalm 19 that God's laws are far exceed and worth the finest gold on earth, his precious testimony. They are even sweeter than all that sweet and pure and combs that drip with honey. What beautiful, clear, sweet insights we have in the law of God. It shows us how to live as his children, how to be holy, how to live in relationship with him and with our neighbor. We look at God's law and he says, don't use an idol in the worship of God. Brilliant, right? Don't murder my neighbor. Why didn't I think of that? Don't commit adultery. I I only need to marry one woman and, and, and love the one I'm with. Don't gossip. Oh, man, I don't really see the harm in that. And it can be a lot, a lot of fun to gossip, right? And all God is spot on. Don't gossip. It will only hurt your neighbor and destroy relationships. And of course, brothers and sisters, these commandments, beautiful in themselves, they are to be unpacked and compared with the rest of Scripture for deeper insights. For instance, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, you heard, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery. Wow, that hits hard, and that's brilliant, and it's insightful. Similarly, Paul, with his fruits of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, whatever, uh, self-control. I think I missed one. But again, beautiful insights into how to live in a, in a real and meaningful way with God and our neighbor. One observation that we could make is that the Ten Commandments are, are rather short. As a document for living, we would have thought you could easily have had like a like hundred commandments. Um, but you know what? We can even make it shorter. Paul does that in in Romans 13, which we read together, where he said, uh, you shall, oh no, first of all, sorry, first of all, Jesus Christ made it shorter in Matthew 22, when he summarized the law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And our Lord's Day picks up on that and says the law basically comes down to how you love God and how you love your neighbor. But we can make it even shorter, as Paul does in Romans 13, where he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. I can take the whole Bible. I can take all the Ten Commandments. I can take anything that you find in the Bible and reduce it down to one word, love. Now, That doesn't necessarily make things easier, but it makes things a whole lot clearer. A commandment isn't just an item to be analyzed and thought about. The commandment is something we need to own, and it needs to own us. 
It needs to fill us and resonate in us and bring out of us something new and, and marvelous. Basically, every commandment needs to be analyzed and every relationship needs to be analyzed by this question. Am I acting in love? And our Heidelberg Catechism is really good at doing that. You look at the commandment on you shall not murder. I, I don't have a, a lot of trouble with that commandment, you know, on, on a casual basis because I can honestly tell you I never killed anybody. I didn't even come close to killing anybody in my life. But then the Catechism says, it says, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, you call your brother an idiot, and you are a murderer. And suddenly, I am so busted. Realize, brothers and sisters, that when we have God's commandments, we need to work with that very carefully with this concept of love. When I'm dealing with another human being, it could be business partner, member of the congregation, somebody in the neighborhood, I need to analyze and think about this. Is my attitude are my words, are my actions, is my body language full of love for this person? Imagine that you had that in a marriage, that a husband and wife in their relationship together are always thinking about it and saying, do I love you in every way possible? Am I doing everything possible to make you grow and improve and to be happy in this marriage and to give praise and glory to God? Can you imagine that a marriage where, where love flourishes like that? Same thing with, with the communion of saints, with a, a congregation. If we think about uh, each other and our relationships as a communion of saints, and ask ourselves the question, do I love my brother and my sister? To the point that I'm willing to put aside differences of opinion. Where I don't hold grudges for things that were said and done in the past. Where I would do anything to help you out as an act of love. If we don't do that, then the communion of saints is as flat as a board. But when there's that kind of love in the congregation, we all grow and we all say how beautiful it is to be a part of this congregation. Why would I want to be anywhere else? Because there is love that flows out in attitudes, words, and deeds, and in all kinds of practical things. And in this way, brothers and sisters, we see the same amazing God who loves us, who gave his son Jesus Christ to die for us, is also the God who shows us in such exquisite, sweet, and beautiful detail how we can really love him and how we can really love our neighbor, love the people in our lives. That is the Christian life. And that is a taste of eternity in a new heaven and new earth. 
That brings us to our second and final point. You notice that our Lord's Day also deals with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, you might wonder, why doesn't this commandment have a separate, why doesn't it have its own Lord's Day? All the other commandments do. One of them, the third commandment, even has two Lord's Day, two Lord's Days. Why does the first commandment, why is it just sort of added to the general introduction to the ten words of the covenant? Actually, we'll see the answer to that if we ask a better question. Why is the commandment to have no other gods the first commandment? Now, the obvious answer is, is of course, Having learned how God loves us and has delivered us in our Lord Jesus Christ, of course he's number one. Why would we worship anything or anyone else? But there's also a second reason. If you don't get this first commandment right, nothing else really matters. All the other commandments you may as well just throw out the window. I mean, if if God is not number one in our life, if I don't worship God, what's the point of keeping the Sunday? What is even the point of, of not stealing from my neighbor? Why shouldn't I? If money is my God, why shouldn't I overcharge or underpay or let people work under difficult conditions? If God is not number one, nothing else really matters. And that's why this commandment is in a a prime position right at the top of the list included in this very Lord's Lord's Day. Now, our Lord's Day tells us uh, when it comes to you shall have no other gods before me, it mentions a bunch of things that we should not do considering whom we adore and why we love our God. But it also speaks very positively and emotionally in question and answer 94, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all of my heart. Right at the very top, it says that I rightly come to know the only true God. We have to get to know our God. I mean, that's something that should be as natural as breathing and living. And knowing God is a very easy thing to do. We have been supplied with a Bible, God's Word. We have the preaching every Sunday. We have Bible study. We have Christian education, catechism classes, all kinds of ways in getting to know God through His Word. And it's a journey, an amazing journey. You know, you can live to be 100 years old and listen to Upwards of 10,000 sermons. Read your Bible every day. Go to Bible study. Pray. And you'll never come to a point where you say, I know everything. It's the one thing I find talking to people in their 80s and their 90s and their 100s. They said, I'm on a journey. Getting to know my God. Connecting with Him more and more. Every time I read the Bible... Every time I hear a sermon, I said, that's new. That's amazing. And I realize what a, what a beautiful and awesome God I have. And so we learn to trust in him and submit to him with all humility and patience. The reality of life is that we face trials and tribulations. 
And if I just read your congregational news, if I listen to my children, what's going on in the congregation, there certainly are trials and tribulations with health issues, with loved ones passing away, struggling to, to live and work in a world that is so humanistic and ungodly that it's sometimes just positively sick. But we learn that in all these things to realize that the God who loves us isn't going to let us slip through his fingers. So if in our marriage, our family, we are struggling, then instead of worrying about the things we don't have, like maybe some more money, we focus on what we do have. In our family, Bible reading, prayer is so important in realizing that we have a, a God who loves us and we are able to serve him and, and, and to love our neighbor. And in this way, we learn to love, fear, and honor him with all our heart. As we also read in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and God will take care of you and grant you all the things that you need. Now, the last question and answer of this Lord's Day seems to be, at this point, to be stating the obvious that it has to be the dumbest thing in the world to have or invent something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. You're all nodding, right? Very wisely, we're all nodding. It has to be the dumbest thing in the world to put our trust in anyone or anything else. Particularly when we remember in the previous question answer, the examples of putting your trust in something else would be idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Nice easy list. Easy to get your mind around it and say, I, I think I've got this covered. I'm not superstitious. I don't pray to saints or other creatures and so on. But realize that our catechism was written in a, a different cultural time. And our catechism demands, you don't stop with what the catechism says, but you turn to the Bible for confirmation and for more information. And that's where Matthew 6 comes into play. Our Lord Jesus Christ say, says there, store up treasures in heaven. And then he says, do not worry about stuff. But in between that, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ touches on something that nobody here can just shrug off and say that's not an issue. We live in a time, we live in an age which is very materialistic and money means almost everything. Now, we want to be careful. We do need money. We have to have a place to live. We have to take care of this church building and its pastor and the manse. We have Christian education. That all takes money. And we're grateful that the Lord gives that to us. But what we're talking about is what Paul explained in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money that's the problem. It is the love 
of money. It is desiring money so much that it defines who you are, what makes you happy, what makes you a success or a failure. It can become a God, a stone cold killer of a God, the love of money. As the Lord Jesus Christ says, you, you can't have two masters. If you love money, you will ultimately disrespect and even hate your God. It's so important, brothers and sisters, that we think about these things, and I, I include myself as much as anybody else. Please don't think I'm preaching at you because this is something I need to examine myself on as well. How do I look at money? Simply a gift from God to use for a, a, a proper purpose? Or is money my God? I need it. I want it. I want it to grow. And I certainly want more than you have. Is that, is that what we're doing? It will destroy our life. Just a little over a week ago, I, I read an article by Vanderbilt. You may know the name. In the early 19th century, Vanderbilt in the U.S. built up such a fortune that by the time he died, he had more money than the United States Treasury. His son inherited it, and he doubled it. Then the two grandsons inherited it, and they destroyed him. And they destroyed their lives in the process. The youngest grandson said, money, inheriting all this money, destroyed my life. I didn't work for anything. I didn't have passion for anything. It was all about money. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to be a Vanderbilt to experience that. As a pastor, I have worked with families too where money destroyed them. The love of money. It's all about accumulating money. More important than your marriage. More important than your relationship with your kids. Then you get old. You say, my marriage is on the rocks. My kids don't want anything from me except my money. Well, congratulations. You picked your God. You pay the consequences. Don't do it. Money is not a God as... Um, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Who is my God? Who is your God? Who's the one that loves you? Who's the one that saved you? Who's the one who says, I will spend eternity with you? Who gave his son to die for us? That is the great I am. This is my God. He's everything to us, brothers and sisters. Let's adore him and worship him and serve him in the way that he allows us to do and realize that all the other things of life he will take care of as well. But as long as I have this God and I can love him and love my neighbor as myself. Amen.